0: Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Sam Prenn. How to make Hamilton streets safer is up for debate at City Hall. A Hamilton woman who was mauled by a dog claimed city officials and police dropped the ball. Should indigenous land acknowledgments be more than just words? Documents show a key convoy organizer was aided by a former premier. We're hearing more about a possible recession on the horizon, and why are so many businesses still having trouble hiring people? Find out more next here on the Good Morning Hamilton podcast.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on
0: 900
1: CHML.
0: Speaking of collisions and traffic and, well, the design of our streets, Hamilton City Council is going to debate all of that tomorrow. Uh, The same day that they receive the annual collision report. And here to talk about it is City Councilor for Wards 1 and 3, Maureen Wilson and Narendra Nan. Maureen and Narendra, good morning. Thanks for coming on air with us once again on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Narendra, we'll start with you. Hamilton's uh, Complete Streets Design Manual is going to be introduced tomorrow. Can you give us a sneak peek
2: Certainly, I am so excited about this. Honestly, it it basically takes our obligation as a municipality to ensure that our roadways are built for safety and for community and not for speeding. And so it looks at, you know, should we be able to (laughs) invest in the infrastructure that's needed? absolutely increasing the safety and amount of space that's dedicated to pedestrians, shoring up protection between motor vehicle traffic and pedestrian traffic, shoring up protection between motor vehicle traffic and bike track traffic. And uh, overall, it really is about completing our neighborhoods and bringing our roadways back into community life.
0: Maureen, you've been uh, championing the cause for safer streets for a while now. Is this <laughs> manual going to lead to some positive changes in our city?
3: I, I'm hopeful um I think this this battle this call for safe shared streets has uh, it's been um, going on for years uh, I think this uh, manual is the uh, the result of citizen advocacy and I think it is the direction that uh, prosperous, competitive, sustainable, livable cities are, are going. And um, Montreal is going that way. Toronto slowly going that way. And Hamilton uh, will be going that way with this direction. So uh, like Councillor Nan, I'm, I'm very pleased and uh, very anxious to continue on with the changes.
0: Narinder, what is the biggest change that motorists, pedestrians, cyclists are going to notice once this manual, once this plan is in place?
2: Well, they'll notice that every single roadway that is slated for reconstruction so in ward three barton street would be our largest stretch of uh, roadway that is up for reconstruction not just repaving and so we would end up seeing treatments on our roadway on Barton that feels a lot like Lock Street does now, which <laughs> thanks <laughs> to Councillor Wilson and the team at city staff, you know, is an award-winning roadway that is conducive to life. I think the other major thing we'll see is a change in Bart- on Barton is trees coming back onto mm-hmm. our roadway. And, you know, fundamentally, at the end of the day, we're also dealing with heat waves. We're dealing with heat dome effects. And, and asphalt and concrete also uh, have a pretty powerful impact that way in terms of moving people off our streets. Um, and I believe that when we start, start seeing these reconstructions taking place, um, we're going to also see some revitality coming back into our commercial corridors and those arteries as well
0: yeah having that green canopy is not mm. only much more environmentally uh, friendly but it's much more appealing and i think uh, brings a lot of people to that uh, to that area our guests but on- i think
2: the most yeah. important thing is that it's gonna it's by design going to actually reduce speed on our roadways you know whether it's our potholes right now on barton street compared to uh you know a, a smooth roadway that's designed to facilitate traffic to flow at a rate that is reasonable that moves people along but more importantly moves them along at a safer speed
0: that's a good point maureen wilson and narendra nan are our guests on good morning hamilton on 900 chml miss wilson is the counselor for ward one in the city of hamilton and uh, narendra nan is counselor for ward three maureen how long is this change going to take we have this manual that's coming out tomorrow uh how long are we going to finally see some changes
3: here well as as Nirinder mentioned, so this will become the lens through which every single uh, project will be viewed. So it's going to inform uh, every reconstruction, every repavement, every new survey that's put in. Um, so as, as soon as council passes uh, the, the manual, it will become the norm. So I would say immediately. And I, I think it also gives neighborhoods an opportunity to, um, to participate and see the possibility of of what can go on in their neighborhood so it it, it becomes that that active lens uh, through which we have an obligation to act and i would say we have an opportunity to make our city uh, more livable Council, and safer
0: councillor nand is this manual or maybe the discussion at city hall tomorrow will it include making main street two-way
2: We'll receive an update tomorrow, if not today, as council in terms of the motion that Councillor Wilson and I moved uh, back in May. And I'm sure the discussion will probably go there by some of my colleagues, but um, this would get integrated into the motion around Main Street as well in terms of permanent changes. Um, I think the other thing that we that that I'd like to talk about is not only does it you know, round out the way that our streets look and the way that they're designed, it's fundamentally driven by the principle of Vision Zero, which says that we are a city that it's not about a bold uh, goal, right? Mm-hmm. It is about an obligation that we of a municipality have to say that we are going to strive for zero injuries and zero deaths. We've had people harmed and killed because they've been struck by drivers at rates that are absolutely alarming through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And you know, just last night, a mm-hmm. four-year-old child is in critical condition after being hit by a driver in a collision on Sherman Avenue. And every time I think about these reports and these manuals and the motions that we pass, I think about the people whose lives have been impacted or lost. And I think that this, this complete street design manual is really a testament to living.
0: One more question as we only got about a minute left here. A uh, counselor Wilson, is this going to change the driver headspace or do we have to do more in that regard?
3: Well, these manuals are always about, um, they are about design, but they're also about values. Mm-hmm. And as a city, we have to be prepared to have an adult conversation about what do we value and who do we value. And when you are in a car or any type of vehicle, you have an enormous advantage. And, uh, what these manuals do but is also make life safer for motorists because what we're f- we're finding is that we have a collision on our streets um, every 63 minutes we have a fatality vit- every 26 days we have a pedestrian struck every one and a half days we have a person injured every six hours some of those people are inside a car some of those people are outside a car Um, We are all vulnerable. Some of us are much more vulnerable than others, and that's the pedestrian, that's the child, that's your older neighbor, that's your grandfather. Um, It is going to take all of us to change um, our expectations, uh, but at the end of the day, it will make for a a more livable, safer streets, And I I think that's in our collective interest.
0: That's definitely what we all want. Councillors Wilson and Nan, thanks for the time today.
3: Thank you. Thank you very
0: much. That is Councillor Maureen Wilson and Narendra Nan talking about making our community safer. We'll get uh, more of a sneak peek on the uh, Complete Streets design manual when it comes out tomorrow at City Council.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: A Hamilton woman and her partner are calling out the city of Hamilton and local authorities on how they handle dog attacks. You know, thankfully, there are few and far between, at least I think they are can't recall the last one we heard, but there was a serious one on June the 23rd that involved our next guest. Tamara Dufour needed 30 stitches after suffering a vicious bite from a German shepherd on the Shadok Trail, Iroquois Heights area. That's near uh, the Link and the 403 and has a, a really important story to tell. Tamara Dufour joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tamara, good morning. How are you?
4: Good morning. I'm I'm okay. By the way, it's Tamara, not Tamara.
0: My apologies, Tamara. That's all right. So, uh, how are you doing physically?
4: Uh, Physically, I am doing much better now. Um, Stitches came out yesterday, which was actually quite an ordeal. But uh, I'm I'm relieved they're out because I was actually, you know, I, I wasn't doing too well before, and I was actually getting like quite a bit of infection. That was kind of you know causing a lot of distress and concern for me, but. But overall, they it, it's been healing up okay. Um, yeah, and stitches came out yesterday. So on on the physical mend.
0: How uh, take us back to June twenty third. How, how did this happen? What happened?
4: So my partner Marcel and I were uh, entering the trails up at Iroquois. Um, we ride there all the time. And as we were entering the trails, we see this guy who we unfortunately also see there all the time, uh, and his dogs and. These dogs are terrifying dogs. At at the the best of times, they are terrifying dogs. So I instantly got off my bike and moved to the side to give him space to get his dogs under control because they were already heightened. As soon as 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 they see people or bikes, they get extremely heightened. So moved off to the side, tried to give him time and space to get his dogs under control, but he couldn't get the dogs under control. So the one dog yanked out of his hand. Like it It was on a leash, but it yanked out. Of his control and and just within like milliseconds was on my leg, basically trying to rip my leg off. so, yeah.
0: so obviously not the not the best day for you. Um, have you noticed aggressiveness from these dogs previously?
4: So the way I normally see the dogs is the owner is sitting and has them tied off to trees. Uh. And then they're at the end of their long lead, lunging and barking their heads off. Like they are, they are terrifying. So normally, what, what happens is they're they're not at the on the trail. They're more into the woods, and we just ride by as quickly as possible to get away from them.
0: And I can imagine, you know, when this is happening, there's a great amount of shock and, and disbelief, and uh, I don't know, panic. What what kind of emotions were you feeling?
4: I. I <laughs> Believe it or not, the body does crazy things and I was incredibly calm. Um, I was very angry, very angry. Um, but I was incredibly calm and I did look at the guy and say, I'm going to need your information. Look what your dog did, did to my leg. Um, but he was not, he, he had no intention of ever sharing his information. So, um, it, and it was just a, it was a very dangerous situation. The dogs continued to lunge and stuff. So we, we decided we needed to get out of there and get to safety.
0: Tamara Dufour is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, and we're talking about her um, just unbelievable ordeal with a German shepherd who uh, bit her leg, and she needed 30 stitches to repair the wound, and is recovering physically, uh, emotionally, and psychologically probably a much different story. Yeah. How are you doing in that regard?
4: Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I will, I, I, I I've been saying... The healing will begin when those dogs are out of that person's care. He, he should not have those dogs. He, he he is someone who should not have. He should not have custody of any living creature. Basically, so yeah, I will feel better if and when those dogs get out of his care.
0: Uh, we're also joined now by Ian Brisbane Tamara's, or Tamara's lawyer from Martin Hillier Associates. Uh, Ian, good morning. Welcome to the show.
5: Good morning, thank you.
0: We've just been recapping uh, Tamara's ordeal, uh, obviously not a pleasant one. Uh, the other side of the story is the response, or lack thereof, from uh, city and police. What can you tell us in that regard, and, and where are you going forward with this?
5: Well, that's the uh, the really troubling part, is that it appears that there's been an extensive history with both the, uh, the owner and the dogs in question, and it seems that there is an awful lot of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing and various reports being made to different city agencies. And uh, so the problem is that without a sort of a cohesive uh, scheme of response, um, folks are making these reports, and it's just been allowed to to continue. And it it seems that um, it's... What's it's been awaiting a culminating incident, and unfortunately, uh, it appears that Ms. Dufour was was that culminating incident.
0: And, and Tamara, from what I understand, it was really left up to you and your partner to kind of track this guy down.
4: Absolutely, yeah. When we called, what we were told um, is that there is nothing they can do unless you can give some sort of identifying information. And identifying information doesn't mean a fulsome description of the person and the dog. It's a license plate, an address, or a name so they could go and, and, and take action. So until Marcel was able to track down the person's license plate, um, yeah, we couldn't even make a, a, a proper report that would be investigated.
0: And, and Ian, this would sound like you know uh, almost revictimizing the victim here. Oh, I,
5: I mean, absolutely. The and the mere fact that uh, that Mr. First partner was able to to do such a good job of getting the word out and and was just uh, swamped with responses um, shows really how little effort it would have taken. Uh, someone in an official capacity to do the same work. So uh, I, I, I certainly was. I, I bore witness to to just how, um, uh, like you say, how uh, uh, traumatic it was for uh, for the two of them to have to not only work on recovering, but also having to do the investigatory work. Um, that said, he did uh, he did a heck of a job.
0: We uh, we only have about twenty seconds. Ian is a, uh, a lawsuit being filed against the uh, the individual, the city, uh, anyone else?
5: Well, at, at this point, I think uh, as Ms. Defore said, the the priority is definitely the public safety and and trying to make sure that this is in fact a culminating incident. And um and and, and once that step, we we're certainly going to walk in in lockstep with the authorities to make sure that that happens and then once the information comes out in due course we'll we'll see where that leads but um but it is certainly public safety is the is the primary motivation.
0: Tamara Ian thank you for your time Tamara uh, be- best wishes going forward and uh, hopefully you heal up uh, very soon and again thanks for joining us this morning.
4: Thank you. Thank
0: you. Tamara Dufour and Ian Brisbane talking about a vicious dog attack on June 23rd. You can get more details online at 900CHML.com.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML.
0: An indigenous man says land acknowledgments are just a declaration of squatter's rights. They're, they're just words at the end of the day. More needs to be done. Shane Pennells is an indigenous filmmaker and writer and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shane, good morning.
6: Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Rick.
0: Loved your opinion piece uh, titled Land Acknowledgements Are Not Enough. This is clearly uh, an issue that's not sitting well with you.
6: Well, it, it's a debate we've had within our community for a while. Uh, we appreciate people saying that we're important and they're recognizing uh, First Nations and ancestral land rights and treaties uh, is important. Absolutely right, but there's also been increasing debate uh, asking if maybe there's something more that can be done. And and this is also you know started to come to the forefront more as we're starting to get out more. We're starting to actually be uh, at more you know in-person events and land acknowledgements are being done there. And what I've also started to see is non-Indigenous friends. Kind of having that same feeling, like like they they see land acknowledgements as important, but they also feel like like something's missing. And I've asked them, well, apart from saying, you know, here's here's the land we're on, here's the trees that cover it here the First Nations involved, what's being done to to give a benefit to the the indigenous population, you know, that's that's when uh people start to say oh well you know maybe that's it we're not actually doing anything to help the population we're saying we're here you know we're saying we we appreciate you know everything that the the history and the traditions and all that but there's no real you know boots on the ground effort being made to to benefit the indigenous community that in some in some cases has lost their entire traditional land
0: one of the suggestions you make in the opinion piece, and I didn't really think of it until I read it, and I thought, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, there's a, an event, whether it's a sporting event or a concert on um, uh, ancestral treaty land, you know, the acknowledgement is made, but why not a portion of the proceeds that are being collected for that event? Why doesn't it go to support indigenous children and youth, maybe a community program or a facility? I think
6: it makes all the sense in the world. I appreciate that. And and that's just it. You know, there are so many opportunities being being put out there just at different events and different organizations saying, hey, we, we have, let's say, work placement programs, or we have opportunities for, uh, you know, different internships, things like that. Well, if you're going to say, we acknowledge the importance of First Nations people, why not, you know, make opportunities or put some of the proceeds towards a local indigenous organization. I mean, here in Hamilton, we have a population of about seventeen thousand uh, people who identify as indigenous. That's one of the largest urban indigenous communities here in Canada. We have a lot of great organizations that people can reach out to if they want to get involved. And I think there's just untapped possibility on all, not only for. Uh, creating just a a tighter bond with the indigenous community, but also creating a better sense of reconciliation.
0: So how do we connect the dots here? How do we, does the assembly of first nations have to do something? Do we just have to talk about it more? How do we get the indigenous community to benefit from more than just, uh, you know, a pat on the back to say, Hey, thanks. You know, thanks for allowing us to use your land.
6: I, I would say, you know, from maybe a purely pragmatic standpoint, just reach out to places like the hamilton regional indian center or uh the aboriginal health center or mcmaster indigenous uh, research institute just you know anywhere that that is uh is is a kind of community help for the native community and just see what the community needs uh you know don't don't go into the a specific plan or or specific way of helping just reach out you know the native community we're very direct will tell you and uh you know, I wouldn't be surprised if reaching out is is the answer. Is just hey, come on, sit with us, chat, hear our stories. You know, listen to uh, just listen to us as as we navigate a very difficult time, very very th- like just a time of big change in our community. And and I think just sitting and listening and seeing what we need and seeing where we are, that's the best thing. Reconciliation doesn't have to be some big showy action. It just has to be
0: honest. It's a great way to put it. Shane, thanks for joining us this morning and touching on this uh, important topic. Thank you. Shane Pennells is an indigenous filmmaker and a writer joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: We're going to talk about a very interesting story connected to the Ottawa occupation from earlier on this year. Because We have found out that former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall was giving strategic advice to one of the key organizers of the convoy. So Ottawa police obtained a bunch of communication records, phone logs, text messaging, as they investigate what happened uh, in the city earlier this year. And they found that text messages and phone calls from the former Premier of Saskatchewan were made to a truck driver by the name of Chris Barber. And uh, Mr. Barber is currently charged with a number of charges, including uh, intimidation, mischief, obstruction of a police officer uh, in relation to the three-week-long occupation in the Capitol. He's currently on bail awaiting trial. Should also mention that we think these two are somewhat related. Wall says that Barber is connected to relatives in Swift Current, so... Uh, maybe cousins, something along those lines. Uh, Wall served as premier of Saskatchewan from 2007 to 2018. In my mind, not a good look for Mr. Wall. And uh, who knows what the follow is going to be, but let's ask our next guest what that could possibly be. Tim Powers is the chairman of SUMA Strategies and is the manager, direct, managing director of Abacus Data and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Tim, good morning. How are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Um, The data logs include 26 text messages between Wall and Barber. There's four phone calls that total over 29 minutes in length. What do you make of this development?
7: Well, I agree with you. It doesn't reflect well on Brad Wall. Um, And maybe he thinks he can excuse it as Mr. Barber potentially being somehow related or connected to a relative, as you alluded to. But... (laughs) he's still counseling someone now charged as you pointed out by the courts for his actions here in ottawa in an event that saw the invocation of the emergencies act whether that should have been invoked or not but i can tell you having lived here in ottawa over the over that whole entire period um it was an unpleasant difficult and dangerous time in parts and i'm not sure why brad wall even if there is some family connection would allow himself to be connected to this so there is an, uh, an another bit of a twist to this, Rick. Um, there were, as you will recall, my listeners will recall, there were a lot of Saskatchewan conservative politicians who were more overt in their early support of the Freedom Convoy. You'll remember former conservative leader Andrew Scheer, Candace Bergen from Manitoba, uh, Senator Denise Batters from Saskatchewan. They'd all had their picture taken and photos taken with a lot of these people before... Things really got dire, so I don't know if Wall, uh, again, was uh, the, there was a Saskatchewan network that he felt obliged to, it, to, um, uh, to tender and, and care for, but uh, today it does not look very good on him.
0: In one text message, Wall suggested that the convoy declare a victory of sorts after some provinces started easing COVID measures. It almost sounds like he was one of the main puppeteers behind the scenes.
7: Yeah, I don't think we have enough to to say that or not, but certainly that's the way it's going to be characterized by his political opponents and political opponents of the Conservative Party. Because don't forget the dimensions to this, right? Brad Wall, as 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 many know, off sought after as a future leader of the federal Conservative Party, one of the most powerful. Um, criticisms the liberals and others can levy against the conservatives right now, including the leading candidate for the the job, Pierre Polyev, is that they they were cheerleading here, they were too close to it, they are associating themselves with uh, known racists and uh, and, and hate mongers. Uh, so this will add to all of that in a strange way. Maybe it gives Pierre Polyev. A degree of legitimacy, because t- till this story came to the fore, Brad Wall was seen as a more mainstream uh, type of character and not necessarily playing footsie with fringe elements of the right. Um, so Polyev may get some cover, but Mr. Wall has become a target.
0: Could, and this is pure speculation, could Mr. Wall somehow face some kind of charges?
7: I don't know. I don't know the law well enough to know if what, as you said, there are, what, 20, 20 under 30 minutes of conversation mm-hmm. and a number of text messages. Was he counseling it? Maybe if the police want to send a message, they charge him. I mean, where it's going to probably hurt Brad Wall is corporately, Rick. He's a uh, as you know, working in the corporate world now, a lot of corporate Canada were very uh, critical, rightly so, in my view, of the Freedom Convoy and the message of instability it sent to the globe. That was part of the arguments you've heard, Chris Friedland, Freeland, the finance minister, make about the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So Mr. Wall, by doing whatever he did, uh, has probably hurt his corporate potential, at least in the short term, and his reputation in the short to medium, potentially long term.
0: Yeah, he's a special advisor at a law, ter- a law firm in uh, Calgary who, who knows, maybe they might be reconsidering his position. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Tim, appreciate your time and your insight into this story. Thanks for joining us.
7: Good to talk to you, Rick. Take care. Bye.
0: That is Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, and he is the managing director of Abacus Data. Very interesting story, and I'm not sure there's going to be much blowback beyond um, Mr. Wall in terms of, you know, other conservative party um, leadership hopefuls, members, uh, I think they've, uh, drawn their line in the sand and some are in front of it and some are behind it.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yeah,
0: we're talking about money. We're talking about jobs and inflation and interest rates and, oh yeah, a recession? Oh, come on. More and more economists warning that a recession could be coming, As early as next year, perhaps, Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Marvin, welcome back to the show. How are you?
8: I'm fine, thank you. Glad to be with you, Rick. Uh,
0: Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers says the risk of a recession is growing and he expects one to hit this year. Is the economic recipe right for a recession?
8: So I'm I'm not in the same boat as Lawrence. I don't see a recession at all in 2022. Now, let me try to help out here. The definition of a recession is when we have two or more consecutive quarters in which the economy shrinks. We just finished the second quarter. We don't have the data on it. But in the first quarter of this year, our economy grew at an annualized rate of 3.1 percent, which is well above Uh, pre-COVID levels. In other words, if we got 1.5, 1.6% growth in a year, that was a good year. And we're talking double that in the first quarter of this year. In fact, it's the growth that's also stimulating inflation. So with inflation in the second quarter continuing to be high, there's growth. Now, what they're talking about is as the Bank of Canada, or in his case, because he's American, the Federal Reserve Board starts to increase interest rates, there is the risk that they'll go too far too fast and trigger a recession. But it wouldn't happen this year because if we've got two quarters of growth, the earliest we'd have two quarters of shrinkage would be by January, February of 2023. And I believe the governor of the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve Board chairs are smart enough people that what they're doing is they raise interest rates a bit and then they sit back and they monitor and then they raise it a bit and they sit back and monitor. It's a bit like pumping the brake on the car. You don't slam on the brake because there is the danger that you'll cause everything to come to a screeching halt. Instead, you pump the brake and, and slow the car. And that's all they want to do. They don't want the car to stop. They just want the car to slow. And they want to see those interest rates, or excuse me, those inflation rates come back down to something more in the range of 25 to 3%. So this is what they're going to do. I have no doubt there's going to be an interest rate increase in Canada in about uh, a week and a half on July 13th. But that, we'll see what the impact of that is. They don't look at it again until after Labor Day. That's plenty of time to monitor to make sure we're not going too far too fast.
0: Can a recession be self-created, i.e., the more people talk about it, the more people prepare for one and ultimately trigger it?
8: Yes, it, it, absolutely it can be. And that's also why I'm a little worried when we get this kind of talk. It's almost as if people want a disaster to happen. Now, why is it self-triggered? Well, I mentioned the economy shrinking. So if people say, okay, put a, let's put a freeze on personal uh, spending. We're not going to go out to dinner. We're not going to uh, do some traveling. We're not going to do a holiday this year. We're not going to do those things. If everybody responded to the current situation by ceasing their spending, you could trigger a recession. And that's why I've said to people, think about your big ticket purchases. And if you don't have to buy a car this year, okay. But in terms of going to your favorite little restaurant or or giving yourself a mocha grande cup of coffee, still do that, that's great for the economy.
0: Uh, I need another Mocha Grande this morning, that is for sure. Marvin Ryder is our guest, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. We're talking about the potential of a recession sometime down the road. We had a, a housing boom over the last couple of years, but that has considerably calmed down. Is, is that inactivity or lesser activity in the real estate industry an indicator that a recession could soon be on the way?
8: Well, oh, I'm going to say no again, because this is what we actually wanted. We can't have housing prices go up year after year at the rate of 10% or 15 or 20%, we've said that's not sustainable. And again, the goal has been to cool the market, not, not deep freeze the market, cool the market. So uh, there are two measures you look at, the number of houses being sold, and certainly the number of houses being sold or turned over has dropped off. But if you look at the prices that people are paying for those houses, they haven't changed all that much. And that is actually the dream scenario what I would call the freeze scenario that we'd have a year or two years where housing prices don't change that much year from year. If we can get housing prices to remain calm and and not have this this stampede that we had of people rushing out to buy them, then again, a calm housing market's good because then we can kind of catch up and make housing affordable again. Right now, for many people, housing became unaffordable. And so this is this fine line that we're trying to walk. Cool, calm but not so much that we're causing a freeze.
0: We've got about 30 seconds. Are there any positives to recessions in terms of resetting or rebalancing the economy?
8: Well, you know, I suppose that that's a great way of looking at it. That if things got superheated, then having that pause allows things to get back to normal. But we would rather do it with more of just a, a regular freeze as opposed to a reversal. And that's really what a recession is. The, the, the economy is shrinking. We don't want to have that. Again, keep in mind that we've got nearly full employment. We have the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. So, uh, you know, again, normally a recession is accompanied by layoffs. We're not seeing any businesses laying people off. I'm very hopeful we can get through this with what we call the soft landing as opposed to the hard landing of a recession.
0: Marvin, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today.
8: Glad to be with you. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Canada's unemployment rate currently stands at 5.1%. You might be thinking that number is ultra low. Well, it is. That level was recorded back in May. 5.1% is the lowest unemployment rate in this country since 1976. I was two years old. So why are some businesses struggling to fill their job vacancies. There's a big disconnect here. Statscan says the number of job vacancies at the beginning of April hit just over 1 million. That's up more than 40% compared to last year. What gives? Steve Anku is a market manager at Manpower Group Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Steve, welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. How are you? I'm okay. Are are job seekers just more picky now when it comes to finding a job and if so, why?
9: No, no, I I wouldn't say that that job seekers are more picky. I just, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I think we've really been in a candidate-driven market, and job seekers are more well-informed in regards to what, you know, market rates are. They understand that they have the the advantage over, over the employers when looking for work, and they can really pick and choose, you know, what they want to do and, and how much they want to do it for
0: does that uh picking and choosing also include whether or not to work in the physical workplace is that a discussion item amongst many who are looking for a job
9: yeah i mean y- you know there's there's I- i've I've been in staffing for well over six years now and and most of what i've done is in industrial which was which is a physical work environment we we find that there's more competition from other industries now that there hasn't been in the past you know typically if If you weren't let's say the industrial sector you you were working in the industrial sector, but now hospitality is is looking to to fill positions like never before I, I don't know if uh you know this rings a bell, but coming out of the pandemic, a lot of restaurants were looking for new servers, and that was one of the big industries where they were able to find people, likewise retail you know i i when i when I was younger and I worked in retail typically you know it was it was a minimum wage job you know working there at high school, but now retailers need to staff you know, their stores as well. And they started spiking their, their pay rates and are taking for more uh, labor-intensive work environments, which thins out the market for many, many, many companies.
0: Are we seeing the same uh, picking and choosing amongst other industries like healthcare, skilled trades? We're seeing shortages in both of those fields.
9: Yeah, I mean, part of it is is, is, is the picking and choosing. But, I mean, it, Manpower Group's Employment Outlook survey, we, we, we received the Q3 reports and we have... 47% of companies are planning to increase their staffing levels. This is this is a perfect storm where everyone is hiring at the same time. The pandemic changed a lot of things because prior to that, you'd have companies that were hiring, you know, but not not everybody was. A lot of companies went through layoffs, shortages during the pandemic, and coming out of that, everyone was hiring at the same time. And that's made it possible for the candidates to pick and choose, which is why it's, it's synonymous across all industries. You know, outside of that, there's a lot of growth in, in the GTA and surrounding cities. You have many large size enterprises that have opened their doors, and they don't, they don't hire in small amounts. They're hiring by the masses. you know, you, 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 you probably heard some of the commercials where they're look, people, companies are looking for 2,000 people all at once. This makes it tough for smaller- to medium-sized enterprise to find their one or two people where it might have not been like that you know, a, a number of years ago.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML is Steve a market manager at Manpower Group Canada. We're talking about Canada's unemployment rate being low, although many businesses are struggling to fill up their job vacancies. Are we still seeing a lot of people not only switching jobs, but switching industries altogether?
9: Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned one in skilled trades that was, you know, it's near and dear to my heart because, like I said, I, I work in the industrial sector. Um, same thing coming out of the pandemic. A lot of people were looking for positions that were, let's say, pandemic proof. You know, we found a, a, a large amount of talent that was looking to leave automotive just because of how how much it was hit during the pandemic and looking to get into looking to get into, you know, whether it's food and pharma industries that they knew were, you know, recession proof or, or pandemic proof. So there is that transition that that continues to happen. And that thought keeps lingering in people's mind when they're looking for their next position.
0: It's a good point, too. The pandemic, really, uh, you know, everyone who was forced to work from home, and, and many people are still in that category, uh, they had a lot of time to kind of digest where they are in their career, and some of them made made a change.
9: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Rick.
0: Steve, appreciate the time. Thanks for the insight into this topic, and uh, we'll touch base down
9: the road. Sounds good. Thanks for your time, Rick. Take care. Steve
0: Unco is a market manager at Manpower Group Canada, um, uh, the numbers are stark, you know, the unemployment rate of 5.1 over a million job vacancies in our nation. That's 40% higher than last year. It is clear that during the pandemic, millions of Canadians thought, am I in the right job? Am I in the right career? Should I be doing something else? And not only that, they've looked at the landscape of employment opportunities out there and they are clearly still thinking Yeah, that's just not good enough.